0: Welcome to The Possibility Podcast. I'm Mel Schwartz, your host and thought provocateur. I've been practicing psychotherapy for well over 20 years. During that time, I've been so fortunate to witness countless breakthroughs while working with people, whether one-on-one, as a speaker, in professional trainings, or in workshops. The insights that I've garnered have inspired me to write over 100 articles and several books, including the companion title to this podcast, The Possibility Principle, which you can find wherever books are sold. On this and every episode, I'll be introducing new ways of thinking, relating, and communicating to help you truly thrive in your life to reach the possibilities that you may long for. Think of this as a new game plan for living. Thanks for enjoying my emerging community of possibility seekers, and I hope you enjoy the show. and welcome to this special bonus episode based upon the work of Joseph Campbell, otherwise known as The Hero's Journey. In this episode, I am interviewed by Mike Bruning around the concept of what constitutes a hero's journey. How do we engage the transformative process? I share my personal experience and my personal journeys with him. And we look into how to navigate life navigate our own journey, our transformative process, not to come to fear or the need for certainty, which, as you know, through much of my work, my podcast, and my book, The Possibility Principle, all inhibit our ability to really get into the flow of life, to engage in the process of becoming rather than feeling stuck. We look at new ways of thinking, and I introduce the concept of transdisciplinarity, where we take different silos of thinking, different ways of thinking, and we combine them together in an altogether transformative process. For me, it feels like alchemy, taking two different elements and combining them and watching the spark that happens. Ultimately, this episode is about the journey into human potential, into our infinite possibilities what blocks us and impedes us, and how to transcend those limitations. Welcome aboard, and I hope you
1: enjoy this episode. Mel, uh, welcome to the Hero's Journey of Economy podcast. Thank you.
0: It's great to be with you, Mike.
1: The premise of our podcast and what I'm researching is just the whole idea of the Hero's Journey in, from Joseph Campbell, the idea that people step into a call to adventure, they go through some kind of initiation, and they return Uh, from this initiation somehow transformed. And probably the thing that people are very familiar with is the Jonah and the Whale story. It's it's kind of the story that's in the backbone of of most modern day dramas, particularly the Star Wars uh, series. Uh, George Lucas, who who directed and wrote Star Wars, studied under Joseph Campbell and patterned that movie after this monomyth that uh, Joseph Campbell found, that throughout all these cultures and times, there's been that one monomyth story of this hero taking an adventure. We're moving into an era now where people are going to be doing more of this. It's not just COVID related, but there are a lot of uh, confluences are coming together where more and more people are going to be taking these individual journeys either through of creation of transformation or some kind of optimization and they'll be intensely individual based some will be starting their own companies some will be losing 10 pounds some will be trying to get uh maybe controls of their thoughts and mind a little bit better. So it's the reason I thought it'd be great to have you on the podcast is is one of the biggest steps in this whole process is stepping into the unknown, crossing that threshold into mm-hmm. uncertainty. And your work around certainty, the general connectivity and potentiality. Wondering if you could Speak to that. Most of our listeners probably know that, about you and your work, but it might be worth reviewing and then we can go a little bit deeper into sure. some of the other topics.
0: Well, Mike, I think perhaps I'll begin by sharing uh, my own personal narrative. Tracking back, I'm approaching 40 years of age and I'm living what I thought was the perfect life. I'm in business, reasonably successful, have built a great house. Mm-hmm. Westchester in the town of Chappaport. have two young children, I'm married, everything looks the way it should. Driving home from Manhattan to my home, I had what I'd call a defining moment. A defining moment for me is when we have an insight that's so important that we embark on it, we commit to it. It's not just an insight that fades. My insight was, I'd like more meaning and purpose in my life. Simply making money without purpose was leaving me empty. By the time I got home, I shared with my wife, who a few years later became my ex-wife. I shared with her my intention to close the business. And she was understandably alarmed. What are you going to do? I said, I don't know. But when I went to sleep that night, I was so excited and anticipatory, like a kid the night before their birthday. And I wondered, what will I do? And I recalled a conversation from many years prior in which someone had simply asked me, what do you love to do? And I remembered my response, which was, I really enjoy helping people think differently, looking at things differently, getting insights. So I thought, what could that look like? And by the morning I had it. I thought, I'll go to graduate school. I'll get a degree enabling me to practice psychotherapy. I can write books, I can teach. And it was opening up an entirely new aspect of myself because I had never thought of myself that way. Um, I never thought of myself as intellectually creative. I was an average student at best, but I embraced this uncertainty. Now, I furthered that, Mike, by stumbling across, articles and books in quantum physics that helped me embark on this journey. So if we fast forward two years from the anecdote I just shared, my sons ended up living with me full time. But on one particular weekend, they were away traveling with their mom. I get up, it's a beautiful spring day, I go for a ride on my bike. And lo and behold, for the first time in my life, I have a panic attack. The panic is about the future. Will I ever be able to earn enough money doing this? Will I ever be in another romantic, loving relationship? My heart started to pound. I drove the bike back home, not knowing what relief I'd get at home. I absent-mindedly pulled a book off the shelf called *The Turning Point*, written by a quantum physicist named Frigjof Capra. And I start to read and become enthralled with what I'm reading. Now, I was never anything better than an average student at best in science. So when I say quantum physics, I don't mean the math. I mean the concepts. And I began to read that uncertainty is actually the rule of the universe. And I had a thought, which is myself and most people I know become addicted to certainty. It's like living life as though you're playing a chess match, calculating the future. But we call it the future because it shouldn't be knowable. And I had another revelation that the more we're addicted to certainty, the more fearful and anxious we'll become. That ultimately led to my giving a TEDx talk on the pathway to overcoming anxiety is paradoxically to embrace uncertainty rather than resist it. And so I, in my mind, saw an equation. And the equation was certainty equals predictability. Certainty forecloses on possibilities. Embracing uncertainty equals possibilities. So I began, as the years went on, to employ this in my practice and techniques as a therapist. I didn't utilize anything I was taught in graduate school. It was thinking that I attribute to 17th century thinkers like Newton and Descartes. The other key premise of quantum physics that I employ is the concept of inseparability. The science of the very small, the micro, the quantum, found that counterintuitively, reality is literally one indivisible whole. like the Eastern mystics have always said, or call you referred to as Unus Mundus, one world. Now, in recent decades, we've seen that this principle of inseparability is beginning to appear equally in our macro everyday lives. So my thought was believing inseparability, I'm separate from you, sets up intense competition, intense individualism, and the loss of compassion and empathy, even in a marriage. But what if we took inseparability and made that our mantra? That would mean that how you feel, how I interact with you, is going to impact me. And therefore, for me to have compassion and empathy and good intentions will not only help others, but it can't possibly do anything other than assist me. So it's a new game plan for living. So my hero, just to come back now, my hero's journey through this segment of my life has been to embrace the uncertainty and the unknown. Navigate as I go along, trust that I'll figure things out that I don't know, trusting that I can navigate, and allowing myself to get out of my own way and it's been a profound
1: experience. Got a couple of questions on this. When the quantum physics scientists started identifying things in the world, it was an eye-opener for science in that our world was not how we thought it was. And in fact, I guess through almost every era, the leading scientists that lived there during that time felt very confident that they understood everything about the world at that time that they lived. And they ended up being wrong. And I think our scientists now are at least aware of things. We don't talk about it a lot in science, but there are a lot of things we're not aware of. I guess it has to do with maybe people don't like to talk about it too much, but like dark matter or placebos. And those are just two examples. But if you get scientists talking, they will say, we don't know about this and we don't know about that. Huge gaps in our knowledge of what the world is today. You're putting a lens on something that not a lot of people are thinking about. Are you seeing that other people are embracing this concept? Because I'm seeing a lot of writing that's very similar to your writing out there now. Well, you see, it, it, for me to, and I, I say
0: this out of humility yeah, and feeling humble, I see much more, but maybe that's just because I'm open to it and I'm inclined <laughs> yeah. toward it, and therefore I see it. But my tracking yeah. back to what you said about known more and known less. This strikes me, you know, there's um, SETI, the Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence. Right. And I, I, I think it's mind-boggling to me. When, we, when scientists describe or astrophysicists describe what's necessary for life, the qualities that are necessary. Again, I'm a lay person, but I think it's such other nonsense. They should say life as we know it. Mm. Because couldn't there be life beyond our range of experience and knowing, just like there were particles that we couldn't know existed until we invented the microscope? So couldn't there be life that doesn't require water or oxygen or wouldn't be seen by us? After all, we don't see dark matter. We infer its existence. So my assumption is that we know a tiny fraction of what is knowable. The problem is the way that we know. Now, I think that the greatest obstacle to our survival, let alone our gratification, is the way we think. We think in what's called fragmented thinking. In other words, think about a universe They have a science department, a philosophy department, a history department. They're separate disciplines. They're separate silos of thought, all specialized. Medicine operates this way. And when we operate through a small filter of knowledge and think that that entity is full and complete within itself, we trick ourselves. Now, we see this medically. You know, your physician may give you a medication to treat um, an ailment. But without asking you certain questions, that medication may do greater damage somewhere else to your body because he's not looking at the whole person. So the way I learn, I never read anything in the field of psychology. I read quantum physics, I read philosophy, and I take something I read in philosophy, like Alfred North Whitehead, great philosopher, and I circle it and say, wow, that's amazing. And then I read the uncertainty principle in physics, and I said, incredible. And then I I get playful, and I combine those two different principles from two different fields. And for me, my learning is that then sometimes there's an alchemy where I can create something new out of that. Now, that field, an emerging field of thinking, is called transdisciplinarity. I believe it was started by the French philosopher Edgar Morin. So transdisciplinarity means we take all these separate branches of knowledge that are mind-separated, and we now recombine them in a new way so it galvanizes newer, deeper, more integrated thinking. When we think in small slices and bits, the way we were taught to think by Descartes, Descartes taught us to analyze something to its smallest part. Now, in my work as a therapist, people who have an inclination or a dependence on analyzing everything operate from fear. And analyzing should be one tool in your mind's toolbox. But sadly, for many people, it's the only tool. And you miss the big picture. You miss the whole. And it's not a sensible or a healthy way to live. Right. So where I am currently in my thinking, open to revision, of course is that for us to survive as a planet and a species means that we need to think in wholeness instead of fragmented pieces. Like years ago, in my new book, The Possibility Principle, Mike, I explained that 30 years ago, the FDA decided a certain pesticide was too toxic, it was carcinogenic, and they banned its use in this country. But the manufacturer of that pesticide was free to export it to Mexico, where they sprayed the crops with it and then exported it back to the U S so we were eating it. Nevertheless, that's fragmented. Thank you.
1: Yeah. One of the things I think that you've delved deep into is this whole idea of stepping into that uncertainty, embracing it in the hero's journey. A, a lot of people that are looking at individual change and, and creation of different things or, or just getting from one place to another in their lives. It's one of the common themes is, um, comfortable and uncomfortable where yeah. people people will say, and I've heard you, you know, the words are important, right? But people will say change is hard. If you look at it, it's, it's maybe not physically that hard or even mentally that hard. It's just maybe extremely uncomfortable for people. Not, not, not stopping by the Dunkin' Donuts on the way to work every morning once you're in a routine. Can become very uncomfortable. It seems difficult to start, stop, not stop at that Dunkin Donuts. But can, can you speak to uh, our, you know, the words we use and the lens on, yes. on on that? Because I think it's important. So I think there are
0: th- three things that are coming to mind at the moment. I'll see if I can retain them all as we're talking. First, change. when, when I'm working in therapy with people and they say, it's hard to change. And I might say, well, that's a belief. How did you come to that belief? Well, I've always struggled with change. Okay, let's take a look at why. And as I'm working with them on something, they might say, well, that sounds hard to do. And I'll say, have you ever tried to do what I'm proposing? No, then why did you conclude it sounds hard to do? And what I showed them is they had a thought that came up and their thought tricks them, and misinforms them and says, that's hard to do. So they think of it as the truth. No, I'm having a thought. You see, old thought defends its territory and it operates in its familiar zone. Now, as you just started to allude to, Mike, change requires inviting discomfort. So many people, countless people, before COVID and after COVID, they go to the gym and they work out with an intense amount of weights. They invite the discomfort to build their bodies and physiques. They invite discomfort for physical endurance and sometimes just for aesthetics and vanity. We endure discomfort for that. If we could invite in the same discomfort, then we would find the change is not hard. Now, arguably, Actually, change is all that there really is. So we may think there isn't change, but change is occurring on every level. Now The question is, do I want to change? Well, sometimes people resist change because of uncertainty, like the fear of, if I changed, I wouldn't know who I'd be, and that can feel daunting. So people who feel miserably unhappy, depressed, conflicted relationships, and I try to prompt them toward their change process, what we see is they resist change because relief coming out of those dire circumstances would look uncertain. They're not familiar with what it would be to feel free, to feel happy, to not feel in conflict. So it's the uncertainty of the identity that frightens people. And they'd rather cling to the familiarity of, and the travails of feeling unhappy, miserable, conflicted. It's kind of like you've been wrongly convicted of a crime. You've spent years in prison. One day the warden comes to your cell and says, it was all a mistake. We're sorry. You're free to go. And you start to think, I hate it here in prison, but I haven't been on the outside world for so long. What's it like? And how will I do there? Will I be able to compete and succeed? And there's all of a sudden an ambivalence. Maybe I choose to stay in the prison. I hate it but it's familiar. It's known. And we tend to stay in the prison of our minds and our lives because of our fear of uncertainty. We need to change our relationship with our thoughts and embrace uncertainty and open to wonderful possibilities. For
1: me, that's the key. That is the key, right? Because it, it, But it is a strange condition that people are more comfortable being unhappy than maybe the possibility of being ha- happy. But they would have to change things. It's a strange condition for humans.
0: Yeah, it's, it's counterintuitive. It is. It wouldn't seem rational, but we trick ourselves when we think that we operate as rational players. <laughs> <laughs> we right. don't. If we acted as rational players, honestly, would we be hurtling toward the demise of civilization, the ecology of the planet? I mean, that's non-rational, isn't it?
1: Yeah. In fact, the last uh, person I had on, his name is Frank Dixon. He's an economist. And he said, people don't talk like this, but we are living suicidal lives in that the way we're treating the, the, the environment. He's like, this doesn't end well the way we do it. And uh, mm-hmm. it was just, it was an in- interesting perspective. He's we're, like, we're, no one... Yeah,
0: we're hurtling toward it. Yeah. And look, leaving politics aside, yeah. which is very sure, hard sure. for me personally to yeah, do, sure. but leaving it aside knowing that whoever we elect as president, in an instant of anger, rage, pathology, can push a button on the nuclear codes and potentially end life on this planet with no intervening force. The Joint Chiefs of the Pentagon don't get to discuss it. Someone down the line has to verify that it's valid, it came from the president, that's it. Now, how could that be rational? Right. Yeah. That we bestow upon one person the power to end life on this planet. So that's unthinkable, isn't it? Isn't that non-rational? Now, I'm not, now I'm not arguing for or against nuclear weapons. I have my opinion, but this is, isn't the venue for me to discuss that. Right. But for there not to be some intervening circumstances and some rational conversation. So, so, a president has a psychotic moment, and that's the end of civilization. How can we think we operate rationally?
1: Yeah. So, that is a good example of, and, and I guess the feeling unhappy and, and not willing to change even though the change is within us is, uh, is another one like that. but Maybe well, on a, on a my, more individual I, level, yeah.
0: My, so much of my work is around relationships. We operate non rationally in relationships. We say, I love you, and we join together, but then we end up being indifferent to how we each feel as we battle over who's right and wrong. That's non-rational. We don't operate from a loving of feeling. So if I'm working with a couple and he's not listening to what his wife is saying, I say, time out, do you love her? He says, of course I love her. I said, well, if you love her, shouldn't you care how she feels yes but then he goes back into the argument i said no if you don't each care how the other feels even if you don't agree if you don't care how you each feel that's not love so you don't have the right to say i love you
1: if you're insensitive to how you each feel the words lose meaning Uh, Another thing you've talked about in in your podcast and in your book is the whole idea of of gradualism. I think sometimes when we take a look at this, the change out there or things or when people go on journeys, um, even the word journey invokes uh, uh, a a long, arduous. In my mind, anyhow, I'm not sure whether it could be pleasant, but it sounds long journey. And some aren't, right? Some aren't. It's not. like for example, riding a bike. the the idea of riding a bike to a young person who can't ride a bike almost looks impossible. It, it it looks like it's it's the work of wizards, right? That you'd be able to go down the, be able to balance, to be able to ride, to be able to turn, and, and and then even do things like take your hands off the the handlebars. You know, which you get that, looks fantastic for someone who's never done it before. And it, frankly, you know, we forget, but it looks almost impossible. And then we move from that. To, um, and it doesn 't take years to learn how to ride a bike. It actually takes maybe you, most kids it takes a, an afternoon maybe. just like what we were talking about. You have to get very comfortable with being uncomfortable and But it happens in an instant you 're a non bike rider. And then you become a bike rider, and you're never a non-bike rider again. And I, I think sometimes people look at these journeys and say, you know, I'm not, I'm not up for it because it's going to take. Can you speak a little to that, that gradualism? That that may be something that uh, uh, so is is maybe a fallacy out there in a lot of things. I
0: I believe it's in the epilogue of my book, The Possibility Principle, yeah. Yeah. that I speak to this,
1: yeah. which is I
0: have never bought into the yeah. idea of gradualism or incrementalism, that you need slow and steady progress. You know, for me, that was a belief that never had substance. I'm not saying that can't work, but there are other options available for our choosing. Coming back to my story, driving home from work one day, I have a defining moment. I want to make a change. If I believed in gradualism, I would have thought, okay, let me plot this out. Let me dot all my eyes. Let me think about possible outcomes. The months would have turned into years. I may have ultimately made the transition or not. Why gradualism? If something rings true to your very marrow, if something feels profoundly authentic, Why delay gratification? Why wait? You see, I think it's a cultural meme that we've all accepted, gradualism. And I think it's probably part of civilization's homeostasis that they want us to believe that so they can slow down the change process for the purpose of their own need for equilibrium and predictability and certainty. I've never thought of this before this moment, Mike, but look at the inverse correlation. If you don't believe in gradualism, then you're diving into uncertainty. You are, yeah. And, the, and, and the, the meaning that's giving to us is, hey, not so fast, slow down, be cautious. Ultimately, be afraid. You see, too much caution is fear. As a culture, we people worry and fret about the consequences of their actions. If I do this, what could happen? I teach people that we should equally be concerned about the consequences of our inactions. What do you think will happen if I don't do this? See, we don't pay attention. No, we don't. So we live life like a chess match. We sit back, deliberate, calculate. If I do this, what might happen? That's causality, it's predictability, and it removes us from the natural flow of life. When you embrace uncertainty, it doesn't mean you're hapless or rudderless. It means picture getting into a river, which is the flow of life. Now you get into the current. Now you are not a victim of the current. You're free to navigate and swim or put an oar in the water in whatever direction you want. You have to get into the flow of life. And we don't much operate that way. So... Clearly, there are things and moments where a gradual approach might make sense, but as an overriding mantra, I am, I am not an advocate. If something rings true authentic to you, if you believe that what you're on the path toward and the journey toward is sincere and within your own integrity,
1: why would you want to slow down the process? listen to a lot of podcasts. I don't know if anybody's ever asked you this, so, but it, it's something that's always kind of not bothering me, but I'm kind of curious about what your perspective is. And, and that's about around human potential. You know, if you take a look at, uh, let's pick some presidents. Well, I'll go cross, cross uh, party, mm-hmm. but Lincoln, Ronald Reagan, Bill Clinton, Barack Obama, those were all presidents that came from what we would consider uh, poor, uh lower income, maybe even lower middle to like lower, lower incomes, and they rose to become presidents. And then you have people like uh, Michael Jordan in sports or Oprah Winfrey, who have just overcome, uh, you know, Michael Jordan got cut from his high school basketball team and didn't Mm -hmm. make it. And Oprah's story is, is the hero's journey. Oprah has, her young story is is just horrendous and and the idea is that i guess my question is there seems to be this philosophy in society that they did it but those people are kind of like that not everyone can do that now not, not everyone could be present but not everyone can rise up from where they are right now or or and i'm not saying this from a, a political or like a political thing but it seems like the people that we make statue of of we tend to think they're from another planet and and even when they die like when a famous person like michael jackson dies everyone. Everyone's shocked that he was actually mortal, you know, and it becomes this. And we talk about it for days that he died, and that you know, uh, Kobe Bryant more recently, like he, you know, everyone's kind of almost more surprised because that he died not how he died, but that he actually isn't here anymore, mm-hmm. and because he was on kind of this pedestal. and I just want to can you speak to that? Because it's don't we all have that potential? They don't have they, they've figured it out amongst themselves, but they went on an internal journey that we all kind of could go on. I believe
0: as conscious human beings that potentially we can all tap into a state of infinite possibilities. Mm. Very core of my being, that is my belief. and In a small way, I experienced that in my own life. Now, what gets in the way? There's a a term in quantum physics, uh, I'll paraphrase it, uh, which is that in the nanosecond, everything exists in the state of pure potential. So I borrowed that term and applied it to the human condition. And I write, in the nanosecond before my next thought, I exist in a state of pure potential. But if I keep having the same old thoughts, I never access that potential. So I think that this is complex, and there are infinite variables as to why the people you cited Attained those levels, mm-hmm. and I don't think we can always reduce it and say this is why. I think we trick ourselves. Right. But I can say this: they didn't operate from self-limiting beliefs. I think we can be sure of that. So that's the first bold stroke, which is: do I have self-limiting beliefs that constrain me? Now, regrettably, most people do. Mm. Now, why do they? They probably learned it from their parents, from society, from culture. Could you imagine if we had an educational system that taught young children about their ability, their potential, their possibilities to access infinite possibilities and actually taught them emotional intelligence so that they could quiet down disbelieving, limiting beliefs that they have about themselves to inspire everybody to actually be on the path toward self-fulfillment and personal evolution. But as a culture, we don't operate that way. We say, be realistic, understand your limitations, given your education, given this, given that, what's the best you can aspire to? We're told, be realistic. You see, we get all of these messages Mm -hmm. that limit all of those things. So when I was younger, I was told that I'm a dreamer. Not a dreamer like a visionary, (laughs) but a dreamer like I wasn't being realistic. But I don't believe that. And so since I don't believe that, I have seen that I've allowed myself to experience greater things and greater experiences in my life than I otherwise would have been entitled to believe. And in my work with people, that's the driving force behind my passion as a therapist, to help people clear out the debris, the limiting experiences and limiting beliefs in their lives so that they can look at life, their lives afresh and anew and aspire to whatever they choose, but to be aspirational. Depression is the opposite of being aspirational. Depression is, is, is applicable to people who don't have wonder and curiosity. And think about it. Wonder and curiosity are no longer valued in our culture. we become so pragmatic. Look at the word wonderful. Wonderful is no longer used as a description of something full of wonder. I can say I saw a wonderful rainbow. It was magnificent, full of wonder. But the kid comes home with their report card and they got all A's, and the parents say, that's wonderful. Are they saying the report card is full of wonder? See, where way we use wonderful now is job well done. We, our priorities are productivity, performance, mm-hmm. rather than curiosity, wonder. This is in part why we have such a propensity to depression, because our loss of certain values leads us contextually to living depressed lives. If you can aspire and believe in your potential
1: and possibilities, you're not likely going to suffer
0: from depression. Right?
1: Where do you think? And this is kind of a the natural state of the human condition is to be to embrace uncertainty, to uh, seek curiosity, to take these journeys, to to live life to the fullest without like that that anxiety. And then the the whole um, limiting beliefs kind of crushing people when they're younger, kind of dream too much because you know they're gonna have to make a living someday at something. Where it's not just a you know, a U.S. uh, Puritan idea, this, we're kind of off track as a, as a global community. And I'm just wondering, do you have a perspective? Was it Newton? Mm -hmm. Does it go back that far? Or, you know, are there societies that have been kind of immune to this that if if we were to grow up that, you know, some people point back to the the hunter-gatherer age as being one where we didn't have a lot of this and that when we moved to agriculture, there was all of a sudden the idea of owning land and then you having more food than me. And, you know, it came maybe from that where we started getting separated. But why aren't we, like what you're saying makes a lot of sense and I believe it to be true but it, it's very difficult for people to embrace this. And if it is a natural human condition to embrace it, well, how do we get so far off path? My belief here, Mike, is we haven't
0: yet reached the possibilities in the nature of what it is to be human. Mm. What the way I look at it is when people talk about human nature, I think they miss the mark, which is what if in our consciousness, we are in our infancy or we are emotionally and spiritually the level of a five or six year old. And if you look at the five or six year old and you think that's it, there's no more progress. Your beliefs would be a certain way. Mm. So, you know, for a long time, there was scarcity. Survival was the issue. Yep. Then I think that part of what's gotten in the way is greed. Mm. And by greed, I don't just mean financial greed, but greed on all levels. Narcissism is greed. Only I matter. I'm the center of the universe. Financial greed is I may very well require certain aspects of parts of the population to think and behave in a certain way so that I can attain my profit motive. Now, that's not universally true, but in part is true. But there is this driving extreme individualism, which is probably at its worst in our country, in the U.S. And that extreme individualism doesn't allow cooperative, collaborative, humanistic spirit to thrive. Now we find that spirit maybe in the few remaining indigenous cultures or historically in indigenous cultures where they acted in the collective common good. There was an empathy, a compassion, and a collaborative energy which we see at its worst probably in U.S. culture. So coming back to your question, I don't think this may be wishful thinking, but it's my hope and my wish that we haven't come close yet to experiencing the potential of human nature, which I think would be loving, compassionate. And I come back to the educational system, because what are the major influences on us, our parents and what we learned in school? Now, look at our educational system. Students are graded on getting the right answer. This does not provoke curiosity and wonder. In my book, I propose the following. Could you imagine a school system in which students were graded for asking the best question? Now, as we know, great questions don't have easy answers. We place our emphasis on the answer and we reward it. Wrong. Questions are more powerful than answers. After 9-11, the, question, the prevailing question was, how do we defeat terrorism? That points our attention in a certain direction. I understand it's an important question. But no one was asking, why is there terrorism? <laughs> you asked that question, right. wow, what opens up? Why are we hated? What have we done? What have they done? Why is there hatred? These questions don't get asked. I'll give you a, a brief example. Um, when my older son was in fifth grade, it was the 500th anniversary of Columbus's landing in the Americas. I got a call from his teacher. They were preparing a um, celebration, a play and celebration celebrating Columbus. Teacher says she needs to speak to me. I went into school to talk with her. She said, Mr. Schwartz, Jesse's refused to participate in the Columbus celebration. And I heard it. I realized that makes sense based upon conversations I had had with him. So I I played dumb. I said, why is that? She said, well, he said that Columbus was a conqueror, an invader, killed millions of people, sold young girls into sex slave trade. And why are we celebrating? I said, it makes perfect sense to me. So look at history. History is taught by the conqueror. What? How different would history look if it was written by the vanquished? So victory, conquering, dominating, greed, spoiling the planet. Look at the state of Africa, the continent of Africa, and how that continent has been exploited and mined by Western culture for profit, with absolute disregard, number one, for the ecology, number two, for the citizens. So it's greed, and greed, and greed, and our educational system. Because our educational system does not inspire thinking out of the box. It teaches that you hear the facts, here's the information, learn
1: it, and regurgitate it. That's why we're slow to change. I, I'm going to shift gears a little here. You and I both live in Connecticut, and it's it's an interesting community in that I think in the United States, it's a state that has the the highest degree of wealth, their disparity between wealth and uh, poverty. Um, there's some extremely mm-hmm. rich people in Connecticut. They're not in the 1%. They're in the 0.1% of the world. Uh, but we also have... Right areas of Connecticut that are very poor. I have worked with some of these less uh advantaged places and I've gone there and I've talked to some students about, you know, what their concerns are. And, and I'll, I'll put it a little, this is just for background because I have a question for it. And uh, you know I was work, was working with some second graders so I said, "Hey, what's your biggest concern?" and some hand shot up. So I I pointed to him and he said, "You know, getting shot." You know, th- he's a second grader and his biggest concern yeah. is getting shot. And I said, okay. It kind of took, that kind of set me back a little, you know, because I wasn't expecting that. But I said, okay. What are the other? A couple other hands shot up at the same time, and they were like, that's what we were going to say. They live in an environment where that's their number one concern, and they live with a tremendous amount of food uh, uncertainty or insecurity around the next meal. Terrible situation to. to Corrupt and having those two things, no matter what the loving family or lack of a loving family, having those conditions kind of at a second grader or first grader level. Um, I guess my question to you, and this is not maybe an easy one, but like I did not know what to say in that situation. I was talking to, and I don't want to be the guy from the suburbs uh, saying everything's going to be okay, uh, because I'm, I don't. Live, that, that sounds very, you know, cavalier almost, right? But but I do want to offer them some hope that their their situation isn't fixed, that they live in a wondrous world. But I don't know if with those two things, that's just two examples of what they said they are concerned about. It's hard for them to see no. this as a wondrous world. And I'm just wondering, the whole idea that people are afraid of uncertainty, what do you say to people that legitimately live in a life of Tremendous stress. Uh, I'll throw out another. So those are the second graders, but maybe some soldier in a war, in a in a day to day war, where no matter what kind of objective we would look at these, those two situations aren't aren't good, and that fear could be just overwhelming. I'm just wondering, how do you? What's the so, what's the communication there look like? Well, those
0: those are excellent questions, Mike. Um, they've never been posed to me. And I love taking on a question where I don't have a familiar response because it drives me to a different place. So my thoughts that are coming up around that are, well, perhaps in that crime-infested neighborhood or in war, the problem is actually certainty. Almost the certainty or likelihood that there's such violence that your life is at risk. Yeah. Yes, there's uncertainty, will this happen? But sadly, there's too much certainty that it might very well happen. Right. So I think in that circumstance, the first thing I would do is try to validate what they're saying, which is not to just paint a rosy picture, talk pie in the sky, and invalidate their actually grounded fears. I would seek to validate it with compassion mm. and empathy and just imagine how horrible that is. Yeah. Then at some point, I would try to pivot and have them contemplate what might be within their reach, not in second grade, of course, but as they grow older, to allow them to remove themselves and distance themselves from environments that are so deadly and violent. Now, how would they do that? I guess that would require a certain level of success. They don't have to become the one-tenth of one percent, but we could pivot and say, look, it's not fair. It's not right. It shouldn't be that way. And no matter what your income is, you're entitled to be safe not live in fear of violence or getting shot. This isn't the way it should be. Sadly, it is how it is. So we don't legitimize it, but then we pivot and say, but you're obviously an intelligent young girl or boy. And have you ever thought about if you really, really put your focus as best you can onto succeeding? What does that mean? Well, right now it starts like learning and getting good grades. And do you know if you continue to follow that path, you may succeed to the point that you might be able to live pretty much wherever you want and live in places where your life isn't at risk. That possibility is there for you. I can't guarantee you'll achieve it, but you have every chance that you could. Yeah. So rather than living in the, the despair and the fear of the known, what do we have to do to make our lives feel safer? And then again, you know, using President Obama as an example and indicating, you know, President Obama's mom was on welfare and explaining what welfare it is if these kids don't know. Say, wow. But, She believed in him and he believed in himself. Look to where he got. I'm not saying you're going to become president, but you can succeed so that you can make your life somewhat safer.
1: But first, you have to validate before you educate. Otherwise, no one's listening. I think I got stuck in the validation. I, I was actually speechless. I really didn't care, because I think next time I'll, I'll be a little bit more prepared there for what the next step should be. Because I was kind of over, uh, I was emotionally overtaken by, I think I delved into what their life was like. Really had tr- trouble uh, for, you know, probably like they do. Trying to see a different world uh, from their eyes. So, yeah, it it, it it shocked it shocked you. Yeah, it did. It yeah, did. It, uh, you it, know, it's not it's, it knocked you out of the equilibrium. Yeah, and it's you know, it's we're talking. It's 15 minutes from both our homes. You know, so it's it's a it's a strange yeah, no, thing. No, the strangest. Yes. I do want to personally thank you for being on the podcast. Today. I, I know you're very busy. And, and personally, your book, The Possibility Principle, was, was maybe uh, the equivalent of the turning point. It was, for me, the equivalent of the turning point for you. It's, it is uh, an eye-opener. It is a different lens on the world that I needed to see that was there if you start to put your toe into that area and kind of dig into that uncertainty, uh, it's a, it's a muscle you can build on over time.
0: My pleasure. And thank you for having me. And it's a starting point. And Mike, I I want to make you and your listeners aware of this um, in light of the unimaginable and unparalleled experiences we're going through now as a country. I am going to in the coming weeks be announcing a live Zoom conference with some incredible thinkers around the consequences of what happens to our culture and civilization as a whole due to the loss of the concept of truth. Because truth, the predicate of truth is is the foundation of relationships, business, international relationships, And we are at a place now where the value of truth or lying overtly day in and day out has no consequences. And I'm looking at this more as a futurist. And so I'm putting together a forum for a live Zoom workshop. And um, for any of your listeners who are interested, um, send me an email at mel at melschwartz.com. And for you, Mike, if you'd like to participate, I would be happy to do
1: about it and welcome you in into that forum. Thank you so much for my pleasure for great being a part of the po- Have a great weekend and thank you, you very much.
0: I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Possibility Podcast with me. Mel Schwartz. To learn more about this topic and related subjects, please be sure to check out the Possibility Principle, my book, at thepossibilityprinciple.com. I always welcome and look forward to your feedback. Please leave a comment at the show notes for this episode at melschwartz.com/podcast, or simply send me an email at mel at melschwartz.com. You can also use that email address if you'd like to be a caller on a future show and have a topic you'd like me to discuss. If you never want to miss an episode, find The Possibility Principle in Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen, and be sure to hit that subscribe button. You'll get new episodes as soon as they are released. And if you know anyone who might benefit from The Possibility Podcast, please tell them about the show. Thank you for listening, and until next time, have a great day, and keep summoning up those new possibilities.